before, it had a giant number 10 on it. That's to celebrate our 10th year of the summer research program. Um, always looking for an excuse to get a cake. <laughs> All right, so um, today's guest speaker is Rich Yoon. Um, and as you might be able to tell from the permanent smile on my face, um, I told Rich that this is the highlight of my summer. Um, and it, it really, really is. Um, Rich graduated from Trinity in 2005 with a degree in biochemistry, um, went on to work for two years at Columbia, um, and then went to medical school at the uh, New Jersey Medical School, and is currently a resident at the NYU um, Center for Orthopedic Surgery at the Hospital for Joint Diseases. I got it. Um, so I worked closely with Rich when he was um, a supplemental instruction leader in chemistry um, for Chem 111. Um, Rich was a sophomore when I started at Trinity um, and then worked, for me, worked with me um, for the rest of his time here. Um, and one of the things I can tell you about Rich is that he leaves things better than when he found them. Um, that's a supreme compliment. Um, and I can tell you three examples as an SI leader, um, and those of you that are SI leaders currently, you'll recognize these things. Um, three things that he did as an SI leader that we now incorporate into the training and, and still talk about near, 10 years later. Um, so first, um, he showed us how an SI leader can normalize the majors in which SI is taking place. So he would say things in his sessions like, oh, when you take PCAM, or oh, when you study this in analytic, like it was a normal thing to do. And students would just respond to that, and it just seemed more like a normal thing to do. Um, and now in the training of SI leaders, we talk about how to use that kind of language. Um, the second thing was that after serving as an SI leader for Chem 111, um, Rich also took on a TA position for organic chemistry, and then was, was really the first one in, to do that and use a lot of the techniques that we use in SI to help students learn organic chemistry better. Um, and that's continued now to this day. Um, and then the third, and this is kind of funny and requires a little bit of explanation, um, one of the techniques we teach SI leaders to do is something we call redirecting questions. So say you ask me a question in my SI session, instead of answering your question, which would be the normal thing to do, right? We, re we reflect it back. We say, well, what do you think about that? Or do you know the answer to that? And so we redirect questions so that the more the students are talking, the more they're learning in the SI sessions. Um, and Rich perfected this technique to a degree that um, in his senior year, he told me that he even used it with his friends. So what do you think about that movie? Oh, I don't know, dude, what did you think? Um, and so really taking on that, um, that technique very seriously. Um, and then one more example I'll give you, and then I'll let Rich actually speak. Um, so Professor Curran reminded me this morning that, um, that Rich is actually the, uh, has left a la lasting legacy at Columbia, where he worked after Trinity. So they hired him as a research assistant there, um, and was so, were apparently so pleased with what he did that they thought Trinity was a great place to hire people from. Right? And so now, 10 years later, Taylor Murtaugh is now stepping into the position, and she's the fourth or fifth one to have that I mean, position. Todd, John, DJ, Taylor, five. Yeah, five. Um, so anyway, so I'm excited to hear what Rich has to say. Please join me in welcoming him back. Well, well thank you, Dr. Draper. Thank you for all the faculty and for all you guys for having me today. Um, when I was here almost 10 years ago, there was no summer lecture series. Uh, it was, we had our weekly uh, sessions in, up in uh, Clement. Uh, actually, it had just gotten remodeled, that uh, lecture hall in the intro chem lab. And uh, we didn't have this camaraderie between the sciences. So I, I think this is really great that's been going on for so long. And you know, just, I, I guess, just to build off of the SI thing, I still use those techniques now. <laughs> um, if I'm in the operating room and I have junior residents or I have medical students coming up to me asking me 
you know, they'll, they'll ask me a question and they'll, they'll say, well, Rich, you know, what, what's the approach to this hip? And I say, well, you know, well, how do you, what's, the, and I'll, I'll respond. I'll be like, well, what's the anatomy around the hip? What do you have to get to? What's dangerous and what's not? And it's, it's a technique I constantly use all the time, not only to teach, but also for us, uh, we have a lot of medical students coming through to come in, who want to be at our program. I use it a lot to weed out the strong versus the not so strong. So if you're ready and you're prepared, you're always, you know, so like she said, it's always easier for me to answer the question. But if I ask, ask you something back, it's that much harder for you to respond. But I always say, if you get it wrong and you remember it, you always remember what you got wrong. You don't remember what someone just verbatim dictated back to you. Um, so first and foremost, I'd like to, you know, obviously thank everyone. It's great to be back. Um, it wasn't that long ago I was in your shoes. Um, <laughs> this was actually the, the first summer of, that I had stayed. It was in between sophomore and junior year. Um, back then, we had to actually had to apply to be in Dr. Kern's lab. It was a fellowship application. An essay, it was like a whole ordeal. Um, now he's a, he's, a, he's a big dog now, so I guess he has enough grant money to go around. But back then, Mark and I, Mark Silva and I, who's, who's now a, a urology resident at Columbia, we were the only two to get it. So we were, we were feeling pretty good when we got his, his research spots. Uh, you know, I can't believe it's almost been 10 years, and really, I, I, I had asked Dr. Draper what I'm going to talk about, and really, for this crowd, the area of my research, which is in orthopedic surgery, it's a lot of pretty pictures and, you know, a lot of hardware, a lot of metal to put in people, but it's really not, it'll, I, I want to keep you awake, I don't want you to put, put you to sleep. So I actually talked to some of my colleagues about what I should talk about today, and really, um, what I want to talk to you guys about today is where I am today. Um, how I got here, how Trinity helped me get here, where I want to go, and also to really just wrap everything up and kind of hopefully you guys remember some things from my talk that'll, that you can apply not only in your upcoming years, but you know, even 10 years down the line when you're in my shoes. The most important thing about today is really how you can take advantage of what this, uh, frankly, awesome institution has available to you, how much it's gotten better and how much they love you and support you throughout whatever you decide to do. Um, I, I just want to reemphasize that one of the, probably if not the major reason why I'm back today is because I've been successful because of my time here. The education I received here, um, the mentorship I got here, the friends I've been able to make here, and the relationships I've continued to have with my former professors even after I've been gone. So um, really, you know, the things I want to talk about are what I've learned since Trinity, what I learned at Trinity, um, and how it kind of got me to where I needed to be. So the first thing, you know, in regards to my message is, is to set your goals, is to write them down. Um, successful people in this world, they'll always say, and you can hear it on like CNN or Forbes, write down your goals, whether it's to get into med school, it's to, uh, you know, ace organic, or if it's like to do the laundry on Thursday. Every little goal should get a checkbox, uh, either if it's in your iPhone or on a little post-it note. Write down every single goal, because as little or as big as it is, it feels pretty damn good to check it off. <laughs> Formulate a plan. Uh, not something that's set in concrete, but have a schedule. What do you wanna, where do you want to be 20 years online? Where do you envision yourself? That might be hard to see right now. But what do you do when you want to graduate? Do you want to go to med school? Do you want to go to grad school? Do you want to go to grad school? If that's the case, that means you have to schedule in GREs and MCATs. So what does it take to get into med school? Do I have to do research? You're already here, so you're already doing research. 
Do I need, what kind of GPA do I have to get? Who would I have to contact? If you formulate a plan and you write it down, these are concrete things that you can kind of achieve and always keep in the back of your mind <coughs> as you move forward and, uh, through your college career. Always, and I learned this the hard way, this is the mantra above all, work hard. Work hard, work hard, work hard, work hard, work harder. A lot of you guys in this room are definitely smarter than me. I'll tell you that right now. Probably 90% of people in this room, but I'll guarantee you, no one in this room will outwork me. And if you try, I'll just work harder. That's been my mantra for a long time. And, and you'll hear a story later as how I learned that the hard way. But one thing I do have to warn you about is when you do work hard, success follows. Hard work always is followed by success. Whether it comes right away or later, it is always, always, always followed by success. What happens when you're successful? Your ego gets bigger. Do not let your ego get very big. Dr. Mitzel always used to say it. I, we just talked about it right outside. He always used to say, you know, you're really, Dr. Mitzel, can you, I mean, I don't want to mess up the quote. You'll, you'll do fine. It's like, you know, he always, he always used to tell us, he goes, when you think you know everything, that's when you get into trouble, right? We only know about 5% of what's known about organic chemistry, that's what he used to say. When you feel like the moment you know everything, that's when you get into trouble. I actually told him I stole that, and I used it for my junior residents and my medical students. When you feel like you can do anything, when you feel like you can fix anybody, that's when you hurt people. You can never, ego is a dangerous thing in an operating room. I'll tell you right now, I've seen it happen, not to me, but to my attendings, some guys who got way too cocky. When you think you know everything, when you think you've exceeded your success or your potential, when you think you've arrived, that's when you get into trouble. And every once in a while, and as you get older, I feel like I'm doing this more and more often, stop, take a look in the mirror, reassess your goals, remind yourself where you came from, remind yourself where you want to go, adjust to your life changes, and then renew your goals. Write down a new set of goals. Um, this is constantly changing. Uh, my, you know, some of my friends, they have kids. They're in the same position I, I am, working by law 80 hours a week, probably more usually. Uh, but you know, uh, a lot of the times, life throws you a curveball. You have to sit down, you have to reassess, and you have to kind of renew what you want to do with your life and how you're going to get there. And this is something that you know, really hits home for me, and one of the reasons why I'm back is never forget where you came from, paid forward. Eventually, you'll be in my shoes, whether you're in front of a big group like this, whether you're one-on-one -on -one with an alum or via an email. You are given an opportunity here to excel at something that not a lot of people have. Grasp the opportunity, and if you use it to your advantage and you become successful in whatever you do, remind yourself that one day in the past, you were, you were, in, you were sitting over there, not up here. And always never forget that everyone needs an opportunity to get, their way, to get to where they want to be. And last but not least, just by a show of hands, who's pre-med? Who wants to go to med school? Grad school? Have no idea. And that's OK. I mean, it's all right if you have no idea. You guys will change your minds 100 million times, depending on what happens, your family, your life, school, grades. I mean, I almost failed Dr. Fleming's genetics class. <laughs> I remember you said, no, I, don't hide. That was one of my favorite classes because it showed me I could actually work hard. Um, I ended up acing it, by the way. Uh, I still remember. Uh, everyone here, you will create your own path. Your definition of success, whether you want to be an academic 
cardiothoracic mm -hmm. surgeon on the podium in front of 100,000 people in Vienna teaching them how to operate, or whether or not you want to be a stay-at-home dad who takes care of his kids. Everyone's definition of success is different, and success <laughs> is where you want to be. But you have to create your own path <clears throat> to where you want to go. My story of getting into medical school and getting become a physician is very different from the standard story. I took time off because I had to, you'll see later. And it's not your kind of regular way to go about things, and I'm okay with it. I want to let you guys know, if anything, you come out of this talk is, your life is your life. You have to define what you want to be successful in and how you want to do it, and don't be upset. You just got to work your ass off to get there. So who am I? Um, you know, this picture always bothered me because my tie isn't all the way up. <laughs> it's probably part of my OCD, but uh, my mom said it was, a, it was probably the best picture they had of me, so I always sent it to my applications. I'm about to be a fourth year resident, uh, orthopedic surgery resident at NYU Hospital for Joint Diseases. Uh, it's one of the top five residency programs in the country. This is my chance to brag a little bit because I'm, I'm you know, it's, it's nice to come back and let you guys know what I've done. Uh, this place is one of two freestanding orthopedic surgery hospitals in the country. So for those of you who might not know uh, what orthopedic surgery is, I always get a funny response when I go to the bars in New York City. A girl always asks me, oh, what do you do? So I'm like, oh, I'm an orth orthopedic surgery resident. The response 80% of the time in New York City is, oh, you like feet? <laughs> I'm like, let me talk to your friend. No. <laughs> so, <laughs> what, I, what I do is, and to put, put it very simply, is I put broken people back together, uh, or I help to do so. So this is a 27-year-old male. He was one of the smart individuals who decided to go uh, riding on his motorcycle uh, without a helmet. He fell. He got hit by a car. Uh, this wasn't the only injury he had. This is his right shin bone, his tibia. Uh, this was an open injury. This part of the bone was sticking out of the body. He had no pulses distally, so he had no blood flow down to his body. Um, we took him to the emergency room. His muscles were so tight from bleeding inside that we had to basically incise and release all his muscles from his knee to his ankle. We had, he had two long incisions. We had to release everything, which meant that it was going to be 100 times harder to put this back together. So this is a, a fracture, If uh, in layman's terms, I guess, a compound fracture. We call it segmental fracture because there's a fracture up here, a fracture down here, and these cracks actually went into his knee joint. Uh, and all for, you, all for all you athletes out there, we're so crazy about your knees, your elbows, your wrists, your hips, and your ankles because if, if this violates the joint, that means it violates the cartilage. If it violates the cartilage, you get arthritis early. If you get arthritis early, little things like tying your shoes become a problem. So this is why we're so concerned about fixing these things soon and right away and anatomically. And for this young gentleman, we were able to get him back. This is a, something called an intermedullary nail. We put down this nail. Before that, we put this plate up. We kind of held this piece back together, you can imagine. We put a couple screws along the back, and then we dropped this nail all the way down. Um, he is right now about three, four years out. We did him right when I was en entering my uh, residency, and he's walking no longer riding motorcycles, thankfully. <laughs> so if anyone asks, um, if you ask any of my mentor, mentors uh, where I'm headed, where they see me in 20 years, they say, they say that I see you as an academic. And you know, what does that really mean? 
it means, in, in, in a few words, podium, publish, and teach. Um, obviously, for us, for me, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. Teaching for me is to teach residents and fellows how to operate, how to fix fractures, um, how to do hip replacements, how to uh, indicate patients for surgery the right way and take care of them afterwards. Uh, my publishing is a little bit different than the publishing that go goes on here. My, the publishing I do is much easier than the publishing that goes on here, by the way. Um, and to be on the podium. I love being on the podium. I love talking. It's something that uh, my mentors here fostered greatly. Um, but for me, I am on the path of, to academic medicine. I hope to, I hope to stay there. So how am I doing? Uh, right now, going into my fourth year, uh, I've been fortunate enough to have published 51 papers, um, written and ready to go. Uh, just little points here and there. I have about 79 left. Uh, here's the prover. Here's my PubMed as of yesterday. Uh, I have over 100 invited uh, podium and poster presentations internationally and nationally. Uh, as an intern, I applied to something called the Clinician Scholar Development Program. It's a program sponsored by our National Orthopedic Surgeon Society uh, where they ask uh, chief residents, people in their fifth year, fellows, and young attendings, people just starting out, to apply uh, to get kind of a fast track on how to publish and how to publish well. I applied as an intern. Uh, I was the youngest member uh, to be accepted, and I uh, participated as a second year resident. Um, you can see me here in this fuzzy picture. I'm the bald-headed guy next to the chairman, right behind him. Um, I was one of the youngest to read, uh, receive uh, this uh, door award. Basically, uh, if any of you, God forbid, any of you have an old uh, grandmother or grandfather who gets a, a certain type of hip fracture, part of my research is to help dictate what kind of implant they get to make sure they function properly afterwards. Um, this was a huge, huge uh, honor for me to help put this together because it was the first time I'd been involved in getting a $150,000 grant uh, and subsequently an NIHK 32, which is about $2.5 million. And then I helped write their R01, which was uh, $4.5 million. So it was my first experience uh, while at Columbia I got a chance to grant write, write well, get my butt kicked by the reviewers, and still submit and still get some money for, for the people I was, I, I was working for. So my timeline starts uh, in high school. Uh, I mean, I'm a, I'm a dork now. I was a dork back then. Just didn't, wasn't, wasn't uh, happy to admit it back then, I guess. Uh, I grew up in New Jersey. Uh, when I was in middle school, uh, I wanted to go to a specialized school. So I took an exam, and I went to a really nerdy science high school. Uh, in New Jersey. Being the benefit of being in New Jersey uh, at the specialized schools, a lot of good schools for some reason or another put you on their radar for no reason. I didn't want a large school. I didn't want an Ivy. Uh, to be frank, there's too many, uh, there are too many Koreans at Ivy Leagues. Um, and I, I wanted to be in an environment that was small, liberal arts, that was uh, more to my learning. I knew then that I could learn, I learned better in smaller groups. I learned better with one-on-one -on -one teaching. You know, my best friend, one of my best friends went to Michigan, his Orgo 1 class was 375 people. I was like, there's no way. I'd, I'd probably quit and I don't know. I don't know what I'd be doing. So, you know, I ended up, at, I ended up here, um, which was one of my top choices. Uh, after Trinity, like Dr. Draper said, I got a job at Columbia. From there, I went to uh, New Jersey Med School. And now I'm here and, you know, who knows where I'll be going for fellowship and where my first real job would be. But the reason why we're here today is to really focus on this area of my life and to kind of let you know the mistakes I made, how I learned from them, 
and how I really rebounded. Um, so really, you know, the real story uh, has to do with what I learned here. Uh, like Dr. Draper alluded to, I was a biochemistry major. I had a passion for organic chemistry. I'd worked in Dr. Hearn's lab for two and a half years. Everything I did was kind of fo uh, focused towards that end in terms of my classes. So I wasn't really in this building as much as I was in Clement. I almost minored in African-American liter literature. I don't know if Dr. Jennifer Stedman is still here. She's not. Man, her classes were awesome. I took all of her classes to fill my liberal arts requirements, and I was literally a thesis away from getting a minor. I, looking back, I probably should have done it just for giggles, but I didn't. <laughs> um, some of my favorite classes, uh, intro chem, Dr. Parr. I still remember a conversation we had first semester. So in my high school, I had no finals. That's how privileged they felt that we were. I had no finals in high school. So I got into intro chem. I'm averaging like, I don't know, it was like an 85 or something. It was terrible. And I sit down with her. I'm like, Dr. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, and Dr. Oh, is that? I don't know. Anyway. So doc, I sit down with Dr. Parr. I'm like, Dr. Parr, I'm really worried. She goes, why? She's like, and I say, well, my, my school didn't have, how do I study for a final? I don't know how to study for a final. And she sat me down, and we went through kind of like an outline, and she, she walked me through how to summarize and efficiently study for a final. So, you know, if it wasn't for that sit down, I would have probably failed intro chem. It would have been bad. It would have been very, very bad. Um, Gen chem, intro chem lab was one of my favorite labs. Uh, uh, we owe a lot to this lady. Uh, she's no longer here, but people who remember her, uh, you know, we all know why we love her, and you know, she was always there for. She was my, I guess, I don't know if they still have them now, but she was my personal advisor here at Trinity from the start. Um, and she was probably one of the most patient women ever for a bunch of 18-year-olds who had no idea what they were doing in the lab, <laughs> next to some very dangerous things. So, um, you know, I I'll explain later why you know I love her so much because she she's a big reason of, uh, big reason why I'm here today. Can't forget this guy. <laughs> this, is a, this is like fair games. It's on the Facebook page, so I can't even. <laughs> you, want, you want to talk about opportunity? He gave me the shot, you know, even through that rigorous application process, which I was scared. He had to interview us, it was scary. Um, he gave us a shot. He let us keep working there, even though I put like a year and a half and there was like no yield. It's like, Rich, your NMRs are still crappy. I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, but he gave us a shot, kept stuck with us, and you know was with us till the end. Uh, Dr. Mitzel, uh, I mean your Orgo two class. So Dr. When Dr. Mitzel came back to teach, he had come back, I think after a long sabbatical. Dr. Curran had been doing one and two for the longest time. He came back and he taught the eleven o'clock Orgo two class. The reputation of Dr. Mitzel <laughs> was terrifying. <laughs> His exams were open book. They were on Saturdays. He just left the booklet and left. You know, he was like hard. It was, he, they were terrifying. So nine students signed up for his lecture. The other 45, I think, were in Dr. Kern's <laughs> class. But I'll never forget that class because it was like one-on-one -on -one teaching. It was like an open SI session. It was awesome. To the point where I'm, I was like, dude, I, I, I should do a PhD in Orgo. This is awesome. You know, Dr. Kern set it up, he knocked it down. It was like, I, I just, I still remember leaving groups. You know, it's, 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 it was a fantastic, one of my favorite classes of all time. It's okay to be this nerdy, by the way. 
that culminated in biological chem with Dr. Uh, Dr. Curran when I was a, uh, a senior. There were like four or five of us in that class. I still have the book, by the way. I still referenced it a couple months ago when we had this new vancomycin protocol going in. Still referenced in structure, still explained to the pharmacist why it doesn't work. I still remember what I, I learned here um, because it was enjoyable. They made it fun for me. And I, I, I never forgot uh, what it was like to learn and learn in a, in a fun way. Every upper level chem class. You know, I, I, we always cowered from Dr. Pagodich, but this is his, I, you know what? I just deleted my PCAM labs. I just deleted it. Like 45 pages, single pa spaced, like all night around. It was like, it was like terrible. It was like, but I learned so much from that. I learned how to write scientifically. I learned how to, uh, I don't know, execute and, and close a, a difficult study from close to finish, even though it's been done 100 times. Um, those upper level classes really, really challenged us and helped us you know, really think cr critically, and I'll, I'll never forget them. Um, how can I not mention my time in Dr. Curran's lab? Uh, there is, I have no, there's no words I can say for the respect I have for the professors in this room. Like I said before, you guys are the real scientists. What I do, what I publish is a lot easier than what you guys have to do on a daily basis. Um, literally to get your grants, to feed your labs, to feed your families. I, what I, the respect I have for you guys is, you know, of, of the utmost because you guys really do do the nitty gritty work that lays the groundwork for a lot of us to kind of take it to, take it to the uh, patient level and make it in the media. But you know, what you guys do on a daily basis and what you guys are helping your professors to do, I want you to remember is extremely, extremely, extremely important. Whether you get it or not, you're still learning. Whether, whether the reaction works or not, whether the, whether the Western block comes out the way you want it, you're still learning, you're figuring it out. And I just have to thank everyone in the room who's, who, I can't believe you're still in, you, you, you guys are, PhDs are really a, a calling, and you guys really must love what you do because you're still here, and you know, I can't thank you enough for, for taking me through it when I was here. Um, a big part of my time here was teaching. It was my first taste, and I'm addicted. Uh, I was an SI leader. I started early. I was one of the first ones. Uh, I learned very quickly, never to answer a question. Always to answer a question with another question preferably ask someone else that question. Um, but it's the way you teach. And you know, now it's, it's a little bit different because the culture of medicine, especially in orthopedic surgery, is such a hierarchical, um, kind of a militarized kind of thing that I'm trying to change where you know, if, I answer, if, I repeat, if I answer you back with another question, the student gets scared. And I, and I say, listen, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to like, put you down. I'm not trying to like, kind of, I'm trying to understand your baseline level of knowledge. I'm trying to understand, once I figure that out, from where can I teach you from? Because everyone's different. So you know, if you know the anatomy, but you don't know the next step, OK, I can go, go from there. But if you know the anatomy, the next step, you don't know what it's like to take care of someone after, then I can go from there. Or if you don't know anything, then I can start from there. It's not a bad thing. It just gives me a, a kind of a roadmark to say, OK, this student is here. This is where I have to bring them along. The student is same with my residents, my junior residents. Is, this guy's here, this girl's here. This is where I have to bring them along. It's an important thing to know, even with my patients. You have to understand where they're coming from. If you don't know where they are, where they're at, where their level of knowledge is, then it's going to be a lot harder for you to relate um, to that to that person, whoever you're talking to. And don't forget, this is Trinity College. 
Um, I still have the link. It was like on uh, one of the, uh, I guess, bad magazines, like top 10 biggest party schools in the country. We had a lot of fun. Uh, I'm an extrovert, I'm a social person. In between all the work, I did have a lot of fun here and it's, it's nice to see the tap open. Uh, again, but uh, you know, it's it, it's what I'll go into later is is achieving a balance and understanding your limitations. Uh, another thing I learned the hard way. So what? So what did I learn here? What are the stories that you guys are really here for? Um, so I want to I want to emphasize the junior fall of junior year into my senior year. That's that was really the turning point for me, um, and it was important because I just taken the MCATs. Uh, I was applying to med school. I applied to 15 schools. At that time, I think I was the president of the Trinity Chemical Society, vice president of AMSA. Uh, I also got a national position of AMSA. Um, I just given a national presentation at the American Chemical Society. I was fully involved in the research. I was dating a Kappa. It was like, <laughs> like couldn't, life could not get any better. And then I'll never forget, the, I, think it was, I think it was October or so. I don't, do they still have the mailboxes behind the cave? Yeah. yeah? I remember opening my mailbox. I think it was 505381. I think that was my mailbox. <laughs> uh, and I took out seven envelopes. All seven were rejections from medical school. So that had totaled, adding up for the five previous, I was out 12 out of 15. So at this point, like I was like, oh crap. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know what to do. So I, I, I was, I asked myself, so what, what do normal? or abnormal 21, 22 year olds do when they get rejected from seven medical schools in one day. You freak out. <laughs> I freaked out. The closest place that I knew to go was her office. I went to her office, I sat down, I was like, I'm sorry, you have a moment. She kicked the student out. <laughs> Closed the door and I just started crying, bawling. I was like, I don't know what to do. I was like, I was on cloud nine. I thought I was gonna get in. I had like you know nine schools left to go. I was like, what the hell am I gonna do? And she just kind of, she kind of looked at me. She took a moment. It felt like four hours. Probably was like thirty seconds. She goes, well, you gotta figure out what you want. What do you want? Do you really want to be a doctor? Do you know what it means to be a doctor? Or are you just saying that? You gotta figure out if you really really want this or yet. Write it down. You want to be a doctor? Write it down. Put it up on your wall. And I think still somewhere. I think it's in my yearbook. I still have a sign that says, you know, you're gonna get into med school. I put that on my wall that day. And then it's something that she said resonated in my head for a long time still to this day. She goes, well, you gotta work hard. You know, up until that point, I thought I had been working hard. I had a decent GPA. You know, I, I, like I said, I was on cloud nine. I was arrogant. I thought, you know, I didn't really study that hard. I thought this was hard, this is where my talent would get me. I should get to where I, I want to go, right? Well, obviously this wasn't the case. So she said work hard, it just kind of, that just kind of echoed in my head for a while. And then she said never forget or remind yourself of this moment. This is something, this is a story I've been telling ever since I got into med school. It's just now it just means a lot more because I've actually done something with my life. I have a long way to go, but now it means a lot more when I tell residents and medical students that I didn't get in the first time. I had to take time off. This was not by choice. I always remember, this is like the, probably the best, the best point in my life looking back because it made me realize a lot of things I had not been doing. And then she said, what are you going to do about it? She said, once you figure out what you want to do, you got to make a choice. You're going to put your head down, you're going to focus, you're going to work, 
or you're just gonna kind of like hope things kind of just fall in your lap. And you know, I really took a hard look in the mirror and I realized my GPA was okay. At that time it was probably like a 3.4, 3.5. My MCAT score was okay, I had a 28. Didn't study at all. Uh, I'm pretty sure I went out the night before. Uh, didn't really focus on it too much. I was in a lab doing research, but you know, was I putting as much as I could into it? Um, taking a look at myself, probably not. Probably could work harder there. So at the end of the day, I realized I really need to redefine what work hard meant. I knew I had to take time off. I did. I decided I wanted to become a doctor, and the only way to kind of do that is to publish. So I had a year left to kind of redeem myself um, and score higher on the MCAT. So after, after taking a real look in the mirror, uh, you know, you, you really have to take, you have to be able to tell yourself and look at yourself and say and understand what your weaknesses are, what your strengths are, and that's how, and, and improve from there. Because in a moment like this, it's, it's a crossroads. If you, if you decide you don't want it, you just want to wait, you know, I probably wouldn't be standing here right now. So my new goals, I had to get a job. How about a year, year and a half left? I was a junior, I had to figure it out. Uh, had to get my GPA up. Had two, three semesters left to get my GPA up. My goal was a 3.7, get it up there. I had to publish. I knew I, wa I wanted one paper. I've been working in his lab for too long and I needed him, I needed to close something for him. He gave me a shot. I need to close something for him. I need to get something out in the literature for him. I need, I wanted to win something. <laughs> I'm so I mean I you know I was so loud in the department. Everyone knew who I was. I just, I just you know I got to win something at, at some point. So I made I, I wanted to win an award selfishly. So what did I do? Uh, I got a job. Your alumni office is not like some cave where people go and just get paid to do nothing. That's where I went. I accessed the alumni database. I looked up MD, Boston, New York. I emailed every person uh, that had a lab that was in academics, that it was associated with some kind of high, like medical, medical school or something, and asked, I sent them my CV and I said, I'm interested in a job. I want to give you one, probably two years. And I like just straight up in an email. I got seven or eight hits back. I got a job offer from a, a cancer lab up at Harvard, I got a job offer at a radiation oncology lab at Sloan Kettering. I got a job offer in an obesity lab at Cornell. I got a job offer here at Center for Hip and Knee Replacement at Columbia. And the reason why I took this job was I wouldn't be an assistant. I wasn't going to be a guy pipetting, which there's nothing wrong with that, but I wanted, I knew I needed something that was going to be uh, a little more concrete, something I could put on my CV faster. Um, I came here because I would be running the lab. It's a clinical research lab. It's very, very small. The attendings were junior. They were very young. They needed someone to help them out and execute their studies that were ongoing. So for me, I saw a base, basically a hit or miss opportunity. Either I took it by the reins and I did very, very well and I did incredibly well. Ooh, sorry. <laughs> I did incredibly well or I did nothing, and I completely faltered. Um, so for him, was, uh, he's an alum, class of 86, I believe, Bill McCauley. He sat me down, and he goes, his first question was, so why should I give 
the reins of my lab over to a 22-year-old graduate? First question off the bat. 6.30 in the morning on a Monday, right before we had to go to the operating room. I looked at him dead in the eye, handed him my CV, I said, because no one would be more productive for you than me. I, I didn't realize what I was saying. <laughs> it, was like, it was like that Will Ferrell moment in old school where he just blacks out. That was like me. I was like, because no one's going to be more productive for you than me. And he goes, all right, so I'm going to give you six months. So for six months, he paid me at like 25 grand for the year and gave me a senior clerk position, which is a, a, you know, a BS position made up. He goes, six months, show me what you can do. See if you can handle it. So in six months there, uh, I think I did pretty well for myself. Um, published two papers. Basically, I showed him that I could run his lab for him. And uh, we'll see later, uh, that, worked out, that worked out well for me. Um, over the course of that year and a half, I busted my butt. I did as best as I could. And I got my GPA up to that 3.7 that I wanted. I was able to publish for Dr. Kern, which is, you know, for me, huge. It just made me happy to close for the guy. And actually, all this work came out of like two and a half weeks in the summer that I got hot. That was it. That was incredible. It's like, when you're hot, never leave the lab. I'll tell you that right now. If you're hot, if you've got a good hand, don't just like bring a sleeping bag. Just sleep. <laughs> and uh, I got some awards. Uh, Mark was my partner in crime, so we ended up in a lot of pictures together. And back then, I had hair, so. Um, <laughs> But uh, it, it, was, it was a nice, it was a nice kind of close to something that could have been a disaster. So then I graduated and asked myself, so what do I do now? So what did I do? I set new goals, and I kept it simple. Work hard. Number one goal, kill the NCAT. I'm going to study for real this time. I'm not going to study two hours a day and then go out to the tab on Tuesdays. I'm not going to think I'm smarter than everyone else because I'm not. I'm going to study for real. So from January to April, four months, four hours a day after work, no questions asked, at least two hours a day while at work during my breaks. Just buried myself and studied. I needed to publish. I needed to publish. Two years to publish. This guy gave me a shot. He's going to let me run his lab. I got to publish. I have to publish. I have to figure out how to publish. Um, it was something that went into my head. And I, I was glad that I, I was able to do it for Dr. Curran and his lab, so I was confident I could do it again. And then, of course, getting to med school. So I ended up getting a 38 on the MCAT, 10 points higher than my 28, which is better. I was able to publish. And then I got into med school. Got into five schools. Got to Case Western, got to Tufts, got to Cleveland Clinic, got to Robert Wood Johnson, New Jersey Med School. So at, when I was deciding where to go, off the top of my head, off the bat, Tufts and Case Western were kind of off. Not because one's in Cleveland, one's in Boston, I'm a Yankee fan, but Case Western and Tufts were private institutions, and they were very, very expensive. Uh, so it's something that I needed to minimize the burden of my loans coming out of med school, uh, full knowing that you know, I, didn't come, I came from a rather humble background, and I wanted to make sure that I didn't uh, handcuff myself coming out too much. Cleveland Clinic was the second year there were actually a, a med school. They only take 50 students a year. It's a five-year program because one's a research year and it's free. So why I didn't go to Cleveland Clinic still to this day is, I don't know, beyond me and my mom, but <laughs> I, I sat down with my mentor at that time, Dr. McCauley, and I asked him, where should I go? 
almost without hesitation, he goes, go to New Jersey Med School. I was like, what? Why? I was like, Cleveland Clinic is free. It's Cleveland Clinic. He's like, well, I know, I know you. He's like, you'll thrive there. He's like, you're, you're going to kill it there. You're going to be a rock star there. It's close to your mom. It's close to your family. In-state tuition. You can still do work here, which I think in the end might have been his uh, alter motor. But <laughs> he goes, go to New Jersey Med. So you know, I, I, went to, I went to New Jersey Med. So I got in. So now what? Again, what are my new goals? My new goals coming in was, were to get into a top orthopedic residency. I was one of the few people that were lucky enough to know what, he, know, know what they wanted to do when they got into med school. I left everything open. <coughs> I always say now, if you don't like your third year of medicine, if you don't like all of medicine, you probably shouldn't be in medicine. But you have to love what you want to do 20, 30 years down the line. And I'll never forget the day I met my first post-operative patient with Dr. McCauley when I was in, in his lab. She was about six weeks out from her hip replacement. This was like a 75-year-old lady. We walk into the room. This is the first patient I'm seeing. I never did any shadowing or that. I walk in. He looks at me. He goes, this is Mrs. So-and-so. She looks at him. She just starts bawling. Just starts crying. And he's like, Mrs. So-and-so, what's wrong? Why are you crying? She goes, I thought you were lying to me. He's like, lying about what? And she says, I thought you were lying to me when you said I'd be able to play with my grandkids again. So to the point where she could barely put on her socks every day because of her hip arthritis. She was now playing with her grandkids. She was so happy she couldn't stop crying. I, I didn't, throughout my med school career, I couldn't find anything that grabbed me as more. Improving quality of life, helping people walk again. <laughs> that motorcycle kid comes back and sees us three years later. He's like, Doc, that's saving my life. It's, it's, it's one of the coolest things I ever experienced and I knew I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. The problem is, it's hard. It's like one of the most competitive residencies to get into. So I knew that if I needed to, if I wanted to get into a top orthopedic surgery residency, I needed to stay focused. I needed to continue to work hard, even harder than I thought I'd worked before. And again, to never stop publish. I mean, that's, that's one of the things that I realized early on uh, at Columbia was I had this, I had a way to write I could write quickly, I can close studies, and I was motivated, it was probably because I loved it so much, I was motivated enough to teach myself things that I needed to get over hurdles. I taught myself stats, I audited classes at, at Columbia's uh, public health school, uh, I taught myself regression analysis. I hated waiting for a statistician, so I learned how to do it myself. Um, I learned how to manage grants, I learned how to write a grant, I learned how to manage budgets, I learned how to uh, deal with institutional review board. I basically, everything from Inception to closing, I, I, I figured I needed to learn how to do because I didn't want to wait for anybody else. I wanted, if I had to do it in those crunch time, I wanted to do it myself because if there's data, I'm going to publish it. No data should ever go unpublished, and for every manuscript, there's always a home. That's what I was taught early, and that's a mantra I stick by now. Publish or perish, unfortunately. So what did I do? You know, it all started out with this, then it led to this, and then I always say, you always end up with one, then you want two, then you want five, then you want 10, then you want 20, now up to 40, and I want 100. My goal before end of residency is to submit 100, and hopefully, hopefully I'll get there. So what happened during my medical stay, school stay? I busted my butt, stayed in on a lot of Friday nights, 
stayed in on a lot of Saturday nights. I was lucky I went to school with two of my best friends, um, and we weren't worried about being the cool kids. We just wanted to kill it. We just wanted to be the guys on match day that did this. I, I'm going to the number one program in the country. That's all I wanted. But along the, along the way, I made sure to remember where I'd gone and what gifts I'd been given. So I didn't, you know, you know I don't know if you guys, if the term starts this early, but I never wanted to be a gunner. I never wanted to put myself ahead of somebody by putting someone else down. I didn't want to see someone else fail so I could rise. I wanted to bring everyone with me because Dr. Curran gave me a shot, Dr. McCauley gave me a shot, all these lovely people for no reason whatsoever gave me a shot and who am I to not give anyone else a shot and who am I not to share information that I can help someone in their career along the way. I graduated from med school and you know, long story short, here I am today. So before I gave this talk, you know, I was sitting, it was last Monday, and my three friends and I, we'd just been, Monday's usually an early day for us. We get up around 3, 3.15. Uh, we, most of us study in the mornings. We round on our patients. We have conference around 6, 6 a.m. Hit the OR by 7, 7.15. Uh, that day, we didn't finish till like 9.30, 10. A couple of emergency cases at the end. We had to operate. So the three of us decided to go up and, uh, have a drink on my friend's roof, and I told them I was, I was told them I was giving this talk, and they're like, well, "That's pretty cool, man." So what are you going to tell them? And I said, "Well, at the end of the day, I think I have to, kind of, let them know what I learned about myself, and kind of let on a little, a few secrets, um, that aren't so secret anymore. One, I am a huge dork. You know, I tried to tried to not tell myself I was back in the day when I was in your shoes, but I am. I love what I do. I love being smart." I love not being as smart as everyone else. I love working hard to get, to get to where I want to go. Um, I like and I love seeing myself learn. And it's one of the pleasures and gifts that I've learned to appreciate and I embrace it. I love writing. I'll wake up in the middle of the night, I'll write down an idea for a research project, for implants, uh, for another patent. I love, I'll write in between cases, I'll write in between in the morning, I'll write in the one in the morning. I'll write after the bar. I love writing. I'll, I'll write all the time, and I try to do that all the time. I love, I love the podium. I love being up here. I love talking to everybody. Uh, it's easier here because everyone's smiling. Sometimes they're not smiling. <laughs> I love teaching. I think that was evident from when I was here. Um, I like helping other people come along and watching them succeed. I feel like it's also my success, and that's something that's obviously passed on from my professors here. I love publishing, that's also an addiction. That's just like a selfish, selfish thing. I just, I, I can't have enough of it. Now my gears have changed. It's not about volume now, because I have the volume. I don't need the volume, I want impact. 20 years down the line, I want to see someone say, oh, it was, it was, it was UNIT all, it was his paper in 2014 in Journal of Orthopedic Trauma that said we have to do it this way. I want someone to say that 20 years down the line. I love people, I love you guys, I love my patients. It's like, it's something that is unique in the human interaction and it's something that I cherish. And above almost everything, I love operating. I just, I love, I love fixing people. You know, just to go over these cases, this was a, probably an 85 year old lady who had this hip replacement in, actually no, this was, a, this was a lady who was actually very young. She was 65, that's young for us now, I just wanna say. Um, she's 65 years old. She was down the shore at her house. 
she fell and broke her hip. She fell and broke her hip, she went to a nearby hospital, not a bad fracture, and they put an implant in called a nail, something similar to the rod that was seen earlier. She went to rehab a couple of days later, four steps into her first rehab stay, she felt a pop and pain, couldn't walk anymore. They got an x-ray, and the nail they had put in had essentially migrated through her pelvis. So they got transferred to our institution, uh, and thank God there was no, it didn't hit anything bad inside the pelvis, like vessels and things like that. So what we did was we reconstructed her acetabulum, the cut part of the hypostatic joint, and then we gave her a brand new hip replacement. She was up and walking the next day. That was a pretty cool case. This was a 27-year-old, uh, not so gentleman who got shot running from the cops. He was minding, of course, he was minding his own business. <laughs> but you know, we don't we don't discriminate. We just we, we fix people and we take care of them. And his, I wish I had the pre-ops. His his elbow was blasted, just absolutely annihilated. And we were able to get it back together with a lot of hardware, as you can see there. And he's not full. He's not fully like we are, like zero to one thirty. But he's about ten to. 30, enough to get to his mouth and to his butt, which is what we, it's functional life, right? You gotta eat and you gotta wipe. <laughs> um, but it, it's something that, you know, it's, it's one of, these were the, one of the first cases I actually saw as a med student uh, on the trauma side and something that, that draw me to tra drew me to trauma. This is one of my favorites. Uh, the reason why there's an A, B, and C is we published this, uh, this paper. Um, this was a 49-year-old. She has osteogenesis imperfecta. That's basically brittle bone disease. Anyone see, uh, what's that movie with uh, Bruce Willis? Invincible? That was a long time ago. Invi not Invincible. Unbreakable. Unbreakable. So Samuel L. Jackson has an osteogenesis imperfecta. It's a <coughs> collagen defect that basically uh, leaves your bones extremely brittle, and it breaks. She was down the shore, and apparently the Jersey Shore is a dangerous place. Um, <laughs> she got up from her lawn chair, it's 4th of July weekend, and she took, she just like tripped on some grass and she took a misstep forward. And her femoral head, part of her hip that was here, just went right through her head, her tongue. Just went right through. That's how brittle her bone was. So she came in and it was a Sunday morning and I was supposed to go home, but she came in. I was like, there's no way I'm going home. I gotta operate. I gotta scrub this case. So again, we reconstructed her acetabulum, we brought her back, and then we gave her a brand new hip replacement. And she's, she's up and about playing with her, her kids since she's only probably, she's almost, she's about to turn 16 in a couple of years, but she's, she's still very, very young. So um, she's up and about. Now, that was, that was a really cool thing. So, you know, what I learned was I love, I love being in an operating room. I love operating. So what are my new goals? Obviously to operate. I love operating. It's the only way you get better to practice. Don't be afraid of stuff. I want everyone to teach me what they know, and I want to teach my juniors what I know, and I just want to keep doing that. I want to continue to publish. <coughs> um, I want to set a goal for myself. In the clinical world, this is feasible. I want to put out one a month. I've, I've been successful for the last two and a half years. I'm ahead of schedule by four papers, um, and this is what I'm trying to do and continue to do. Um, there are a couple guys ahead of me that are even, they, they, they publish two a month. They want to do three a month. There's a guy in San Francisco, his name is Kevin Bozik, who's probably gonna be the biggest big shot in hip replacement, his goal is to do two a month. So he, for the last two or three years, he's put out two papers a month, um, and it's incredible. He's got a great machine going. Continue to teach. Um, this is something I love to do, and I like to see people progress, um, and I'll never stop doing that, no matter how tired. 
pay it forward, do things like this to make sure that when I've met students come by that I let them know where I was um, and to make sure and never forget uh, where I came from and what I had to go through to get to where I wanted to be. I want to go to a pretty specialized fellowship. Um, I love trauma. I love joint replacement. I like revising the joint replacements and I like the biggest, baddest trauma. There's only two places in the country with two fellowship spots that allow me to do both in one year. So hopefully I'll be one of the two. Um, but I'll apply to trauma as backup. And after that's all said and done for my first real job, after all that, uh, I want an academic position. I want a chance to teach. I want a chance to continue to publish. I want a chance to make sure that uh, <coughs> what I've learned gets passed on. And of course, I like to get on the podium and stay there. Um, not only through my research uh, at national and international me meetings, but at venues like this. Uh, it's, for me, I think it's, a, it's an important part of being an academic, and I think it's an important part of, of paying back uh, the unique opportunities that were afforded to me um, in order to publish and to do the things that I've been able to do. So the things I want you to take away is basically to create your own path. Like I said earlier today, this was a very windy road to get to where I wanted to be. Uh, you know, I didn't get in the first time. Like I said, a lot of you guys are smarter than me. I guarantee that. But don't be discouraged. Just keep working, and you'll get to where you want to be. Uh, one day, hopefully, 10 years down the line, you'll remember this talk and remember, OK, he, you know, that guy, the Asian dude, he had no hair. But he told me to keep working, and eventually I'll get to it. And you will. Always write down your goals after you've checked them off. Look at them again, write new ones, check them off, look at them again, write them, write them again. I'm sure when I get married, when I have kids, my goals will change. It always does. <coughs> There's a balance to life, and I'm still trying to find that balance. It's very easy for me to go 100 miles an hour right now, but when things happen, I'm prepared for that change. I'm expecting the change. I'm going to work it into my schedule. Usually, I sacrifice to, my, uh, to myself, but that's OK for me. I just want to make sure that I reassess my goals in a timely fashion and reset them. Work hard. There's no substitute for hard work. I'll tell you that right now. Always tell yourself, there's always someone smarter than me. And that's true. There's always someone smarter than you. Just make sure no one ever outworks you in everything you do. It's, it's a quality that is disappearing. It's a quality that's present in our parents, in our grandparents, and it's going away. Some people are shaking their heads. You've probably heard this already from your parents, right? I told my mom when I graduated, I was like, thank you, because you obviously had a harder life than I did. Work hard, work harder, work hard. You can never work too hard. Stay humble. Like I said before, with hard work always comes success. Success comes ego. Keep your ego in check. Whether it be someone else telling you, you know, you're getting a little too arrogant or don't go the way I did. Put yourself in a good position. Don't have seven rejection letters, you know, put you back in your spot. And always pay it forward. One day you'll be in my shoes. The sun always sets, it always rises. One day you'll be in my shoes. You'll have an opportunity to help someone else out, help a student out, high school, junior high, college, med school, grad school, something. Always help someone out. Give them a shot. If you don't give them, give them the opportunity, they'll never prove themselves right. They'll never prove themselves wrong. You always have to give them a shot. Keep encouraging them to continue to work with you and for you.